0: Our sermon from the book of Micah, chapter 5, I invite you to turn with me there to Micah, chapter 5, beginning in verse 2 through 5. Last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 9 and a prophecy about the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And this week we're going to look at another prophecy about the birth of Jesus Christ from Micah chapter 5. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect Word of God. Micah, chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Join me in prayer. Lord God, we pray that right now you would focus our hearts and minds on your word. That your spirit would fill us and help us to understand your word and what you have for us today. God, we pray that you would do a mighty work in and through us, for the sake of your glory amongst all nations. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What do you think is going to happen? Seems like I've been getting that question a lot lately, or some form of that question. What do you think is going to happen next year? Do you think this virus is going to go away? What do you think is going to happen when Biden takes office? you think this vaccines going to turn us all into zombies? I hear a few nervous laughs out there. Are we going to go on any mission trips this coming year? Do you think we'll be able to go to Peru or to New Orleans this summer? All sorts of questions about what's going to happen. And it's natural that as we come to the end of a year like 2020, that we are all anxious to move on and find out what's coming in the future. We want to know what's going to happen next. And in that sense, we're no different from the Jews in Micah's day and age. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. And they both prophesied during a time of tremendous upheaval in the land of Israel. Long gone were the days of peace and security under the rule of King David. For generations, the people had been wandering from the folds of God. And God had had enough. God's judgment was coming upon them in the form of war and captivity. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken into exile by the Assyrians. And now the Assyrians and their allies were breathing down the necks of the southern kingdom of Judah. The Jews are anxious to know what's going to happen. They're all wondering if God is going to spare them or if they're going to suffer the same fate as the northern ten tribes. And so in chapter 4, verse 11 of Micah and down through chapter 5, verse 1, as Micah starts telling them what's coming next, everyone would have been leaning in to hear these next words that he was about to say. Micah tells them what he sees coming in the future. And he basically says, all of our enemies are going to gather together to invade us, but they have no idea. What God has in store. I can see them now. They're, they're marching through our land. They are coming straight up to the gates of Jerusalem. They're surrounding the city. Rally the troops. Prepare for battle. And at this point, everyone would have been on the edge of their seats. Wanting to know what's going to happen. What's going to happen next. And then, without warning, in chapter 5, verse 2, Micah says, But you. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Wait, what? Bethlehem? What about Jerusalem? What about the invasion? What's going to happen, Micah? Micah abruptly shifts gears from chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 2. He switches from describing the invasion of Jerusalem, which could be coming any day now, to a promise about the birth of the Messiah, which is more than 700 years away. It's jarring. It's unexpected. And it's meant to be. As we read the book of Micah today, it's meant to catch us off guard and grab our attention. Because what God is about to say through the prophet Micah is downright shocking. It's a shocking message of hope for the hopeless. God speaks through Micah to tell the Jews in his day and to tell us in our day what is going to happen in the future. And what he says is that one day our Savior will come and gather his people and he will rule and reign forever. This message was intended to give them and to give us the hope we need to press on no matter what happens next, no matter where God leads us to next. Look at how Micah begins this message from God in verse 2 with me. But you, oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Bethlehem was the name of the town. Bethlehem was the name of the town, and Ephrathah was the name of the district. Micah probably includes the district name because in that time, there were other towns named Bethlehem. Just like in our day, there's other cities named Richmond. So whenever I'm out of state talking to somebody, I always have to specify that I'm from Richmond, Kentucky, Not from Richmond, Virginia. So in the same way, Micah specifies exactly which town the Messiah will be born in. He doesn't just say he'll be born in any old Bethlehem, but in a very specific Bethlehem, in a very specific district, in the land of a very specific tribe, the tribe of Judah. Micah says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Within the land allotted to the tribe of Judah, Bethlehem was the smallest, most insignificant town. We have a word for small towns like this, don't we? Podunk. Bethlehem was just a podunk town out in the middle of nowhere. In fact, Bethlehem was so podunk that in Joshua 15... When they were dividing up the promised land, there's this list of 96 towns and villages that the tribe of Judah was to receive. They listed 96 towns and villages, but didn't even bother including Bethlehem. And yet Micah says that God has chosen this bodunk town to be the birthplace of the Messiah. He says, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, just like a newborn comes forth from the womb. So the Messiah will come forth from Bethlehem. Now, what's really interesting about this is not just the fact that God chose the little town of Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the Messiah, but that he didn't choose the capital city of Jerusalem, because in this day and age, the Jews of the southern kingdom were still in their land. And the future rulers in Israel were not born in stables in pod towns out in the middle of nowhere to a bunch of nobodies. The future rulers in Israel were born in the royal palace to the royal family in the royal city of Jerusalem. So why will the ruler in Israel, the Messiah, the one who will be called the King of Kings, why will he be born in Bethlehem and not in Jerusalem? Well, if we read the rest of the book of Micah, we see that one reason why is because the kings and authorities in Jerusalem were corrupt. They weren't faithful to God. The, the kings and rulers, even the best kings and rulers, they failed their God and they failed their people. So God chooses Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the Messiah in order to display his separation from the corruption in Jerusalem. And to display his connection with his forefathers from Bethlehem. That's what we see as Micah continues. Look with me at the end of verse 2. Who's coming forth, or it could say, whose origins are from of old, from ancient days. Now, during the time of Micah, the old ancient days were the days of King David. What God is saying here is that the family origins of the future ruler in Israel are the same family origins of an ancient ruler in Israel. Because even though Bethlehem was a podunk small town, they still had one major claim to fame. If you were to ride into Bethlehem during this time, you wouldn't have seen a big bright green sign on the side of the road that said, Bethlehem High School, Class 5A state football champs, 745 BC. You you wouldn't have seen a sign that said, uh, Bethlehem, boyhood home of country music legend Jeremiah Strict, you would have seen a big old sign that said Bethlehem, birthplace of King David. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem because he will descend from the family line of King David. And he will fulfill God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16 that one of his descendants will ascend to an eternal throne. As we will see, all these verses allude to David and to the greater David who was to come. Just like David was the youngest, smallest, most insignificant son of Jesse, but was chosen to be king, so Bethlehem was the smallest, seemingly most insignificant town in Judah, but was chosen to be the birthplace of the greater King David, Jesus Christ. God's choice of Bethlehem would have startled the Jews. Until Micah uttered these words, nobody expected the most important person in human history to be born in a small podunk town out in the middle of nowhere. They expected important people who did important things to come from important families from important cities. Just like we still do today. Be honest. When you hear us up here talking about planting churches in places like New Orleans and Peru and to the ends of the earth, sending church planting teams out to these places, most of you are probably thinking, oh, I could never be a part of something like that. Uh, That's never going to happen for me. Because for some reason, we have this convoluted idea that if we as a church want to send out church planters, then we should be looking for someone who's, I don't know, the son of David, Platt, that is, or some other great preacher, that he will be born in a hospital just down the street from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and that he will be raised in some urban metropolis multicultural environment where he will be discipled by some great theologian like Tim Keller. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, that God delights to use what is foolish and weak in the world to shame the wise and strong so that he will get all the glory. You may not have all the qualifications yet to be part of a church planting team, but you may already have the most important quality, humility. Because God isn't looking for seminary presidents or mega church pastors to go make disciples of all nations. He's looking for average Joes and Janes like you and me. Because when he takes humble, in, seemingly insignificant nobodies from nowhere and uses them to plant churches and reach unreached people groups, he gets all the glory. And they get all the joy. Because they know that it's God's Spirit working in and through them. The coming of the Messiah to be born in the little town of Bethlehem fills us with hope for missions because God still delights to choose and use ordinary nobodies like us to do extraordinary things for His glory. The coming of the Messiah fills us with hope for missions and the gathering by the Messiah fills us with hope for missions. Look with me at verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Micah tells the Jews that until the promised ruler, until the Messiah is born, God is going to hand them over to their enemies. What God is saying here, it's not so much that their enemies are going to forcefully take them into captivity as much as God is going to freely give them to their enemies. God will abandon them to suffer the judgment they deserve for their sins. They will be scattered and isolated amongst the nations as exiles. But, Micah says, they they will not be scattered forever. They will last until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. It will last until the promised ruler is born. And then, look what Micah says, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Once they were eventually exiled, the Jews longed to see this promise fulfilled. They longed for the day when the Jewish Messiah would bring all of his Jewish brothers and sisters back together again in one united Jewish nation under God. This gave them this promise. It it gave them the hope that they needed to press on no matter what, no matter where God led them next. But God's plan wasn't just to make Israel great again. God's plan was far greater than one united Jewish kingdom. When the Messiah came and was born of the Virgin Mary, the great ingathering of his brothers and sisters began in earnest. But Jesus shocked the crowds in Mark three thirty-four through 35, when he looked around and said, Here are my mother and my brother. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That means whoever puts their faith in Jesus and follows him is his brother or sister. That means his brothers and sisters are not just from the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, but from every tribe and nation. Jesus is gathering his brothers and sisters right now from all the people groups of the earth to be united in one multi-ethnic kingdom. Jesus is gathering them today the same way he did back then. Jesus gathered them by taking on flesh and coming to them, living among them, sacrificially loving them, gathering them and teaching them about himself from God's word, and ultimately suffering and dying for them. We call this incarnational ministry. And it's the same method that Jesus is using today To gather his people Today the church is the metaphorical body Of Jesus Christ in the world Jesus has chosen Humble nobodies like you And me to gather his people From around the neighborhood And from around the nations Today Jesus has sent all of us To gather his people Right here in Madison County So this week Instead of complaining about your Neighbors redneck Christmas winter wonderland when you see them out in the yard sacrificially love them and go over there and help them take it down and as you do talk to them about Christmas ask them how their Christmas was and talk to them about what you've been learning about the birth of Jesus from Isaiah 9 and Micah 5 when classes start back get together with one of your lost classmates and help them study for your next test together and talk about what you learned about Jesus from CrossCon as you talk about what you did on winter break This is where Jesus has sent us to gather his people right now. But someday, my hope and prayer is that he will send many of us to go and gather his people in New Orleans, Peru, and to the ends of the earth. And not just the college students and young people. My hope and prayer is that some of you retired people will go. That some of you empty nesters will go. Some of you families with middle-aged, some of you middle-aged families, and some of you that have kids running all over the place, some of you too will go and make disciples of all nations because we are all responsible for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Now, the problem is we think we know what's going to happen if we do something like that. We think we know what's going to happen if we uproot our lives and go to uh, unreached people group or to the ends of the earth And be a part of a church planting team. We think that it's going to be really hard. That it's going to be really costly. That it might even be really dangerous. And honestly, you're probably right. But here's the thing. That's not all that's going to happen. Look with me at these last verses. And I hope you'll see what I mean. Verse 4. And he... The the promised ruler who is to be born in Bethlehem, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. There's nothing unusual about the fact that Micah uses this shepherd imagery when he talks about the future ruler, because in this day and age, rulers were often compared to shepherds because a good king, like a good shepherd, took care of his people. He led them. He provided for them. He protected them from their enemies. So it's not unusual that Micah uses this shepherd comparison. What is unusual is how Micah says this king will shepherd his flock of people. It's not merely that he will rule his people by depending on God as the source of his power and authority. That's true. But what's mind-blowing is that Micah is saying that he will rule with the same power and authority as God. Now, that was never said of King David. But isn't that exactly what Jesus said about himself after he had risen from the grave and was giving the great commission in Matthew 28:18? All authority in heaven and on earth. Has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This promised ruler to come is not just a powerful ruler, he will be the all powerful ruler with all authority. And with this king, Micah continues in the next line, they shall dwell secure. They will have a permanent address, a forever home in his kingdom. A kingdom which Micah tells us. Will be global in size. Look with me at what he says in verse 4. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great. To the ends of the earth. They will never have to worry. Ever again about being uprooted. From their land. Because they will have a home. In his kingdom. They will have an all powerful ruler. With all authority. Over all the earth. That's what. Micah means when he says the ruler shall be great to the ends of the earth. Great is the opposite of little. From the little podunk town of Bethlehem will come the greatest, most significant ruler of all time. He will be honored, respected, and submitted to as king by the whole world. There will be no pockets of rebellion, no enemies left. And he shall be their peace. Shalom. This is not merely the absence of conflict, not merely a ceasefire. It's complete and total well-being. The promised ruler will make them whole again in him. They will be completely safe and satisfied. So it's no wonder that Micah's contemporary Isaiah says that this child who will be born will be called the prince of peace. And of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. The Jews of Micah's day and age were facing God's judgment. They were facing war and captivity. They longed for the Prince of Peace to be born in Bethlehem. And the good news that we celebrate at Christmas is that He has. The long-awaited Messiah was finally born. The woman who was in labor, Mary, has given birth to the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. And at His birth, angels appeared to shepherds and they cried out, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The promised ruler took on human flesh and came to us. He came and lived among us. He loved and served. He gathered and taught and he bled and died. He made peace, Colossians 1.19 says, by the blood of the cross. He himself is our peace, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.14. You see, Jesus knew that if he came to earth to gather his people, that it was going to be really hard. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew it was going to be really dangerous. He knew it was going to be really costly. But he didn't pack a bunch of suitcases full of comfy clothes and the latest Apple products so that he'd feel more at home. He didn't wire transfer some of his heavenly treasure to the Bethlehem Central Bank so he could have a fully funded emergency stock fund. No, he, he didn't pack any bags and he didn't pack any heat. He came in the most vulnerable, defenseless way he possibly could. He moved into downtown Sketchville, into the most unsafe place in the universe, as a baby. And you know what? It was really dangerous. He barely escaped being slaughtered with the rest of the toddler boys in Bethlehem. It was really costly. The night before He died on the cross, it was, He was so tore up about it that He sweat drops of blood. It was really dangerous. It was really hard. It was really costly. In the Garden of Gethsemane, He gave Himself up freely to those who came to take Him away. They didn't forcefully take Him. Jesus gave Himself up. The promised ruler was taken away Captive, away from Jerusalem to Golgotha. God the Father abandoned him to suffer his judgment on the cross until the time when all his wrath was paid for all our sin. The good shepherd laid down his life for the security of his flock. No one took it from him. He laid it down of his own accord because he had all authority to lay it down and to take it back up again. And three days later, he did just that. Three days later, he stood in victory and walked out of the grave and returned to the people of Israel. And right now, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, shepherding his church and ruling over the universe. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus knew it was going to be hard and dangerous and costly to come and gather his people. But he did it anyway because Jesus knew what else was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen again. Jesus knew that one day he will come again and split the skies and gather all of his people from the four corners of the earth. From every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus knew that one day he will stand as the King of Kings, and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and to the ends of the earth and declare, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He knew that one day his brothers and sisters from every tribe and tongue and nation will have a permanent address and perfect peace in his kingdom where they will rule and reign with him forever. Jesus knew what was going to be what was going to happen and he believed it was going to happen. The question is, do you? Because the only way that you are ever Going to sacrifice your peace and security to go and make disciples of all nations is if you really believe that Jesus sacrificed his temporary peace and security to give you eternal peace and security. And if this year has taught us anything at all about ourselves, about our country, about our world is that we are desperate for peace and security. We will literally do anything to try and be safe. Even if it means shutting down our businesses and borders, even if it means shutting down our schools and social plans, we will do whatever it takes to have peace and security. But if this year has taught us anything, if it has proven anything to us, It's that we can't. No matter how many times we wash our hands, no matter how much we isolate ourselves, we can't give ourselves the peace and security that we so desperately want and need. This universal longing that crosses all peoples, all cultures, all times, this universal longing that we all have for peace and security It comes from our parents and from their parents before them and from their parents before them all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, who experienced perfect peace and security and then lost it because of their sin. And ever since, we have all been longing to get back to the peace and security with God in the garden. But we can't. So God made a way by sending the Prince of Peace to die on the cross for our sins. But here's the thing. You cannot take up your cross and follow Christ if you're still clinging to comfort. By faith, you have to let go and trust Jesus with your life. Then the Prince of Peace will come and rule in your hearts. Then, even in the midst of a year like 2020, you can have the peace that surpasses all understanding because the spirit of the Prince of Peace dwells securely in your heart. And you know ultimately what's going to happen. You know that ultimately one day you will have perfect peace and rule and reign with Jesus in His kingdom forever. So you know what this all means, right? It means no matter how hard it is, no matter how costly, no matter how dangerous, we go and make disciples here in Madison County and to the ends of the earth. We do it by faith in King Jesus, who is ruling and reigning now and who we will rule and reign with forever. We do it by faith in King Jesus, who gave up his peace and security in order to give us eternal peace and security. By faith in him, we do the same. We sacrifice our temporal peace and security so that others may have eternal peace and security by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith, we sacrifice an hour of comfortable sleep in the morning so that we can get up early and pray for the lost around the neighborhood and around the nations by faith, we sacrifice our comfort and share the gospel with our lost coworkers or classmates by faith. We sacrifice the comfortable standard of living that we could afford the bigger house, the nicer cars so that we can give and send missionaries to places like Peru by faith we sacrifice a comfortable week of vacation time in the summer so that we can go down and serve Lakeshore Church and share the gospel in New Orleans. By faith, we sacrifice and uproot our entire lives and we come to New Orleans or to Peru or to even an unreached people group in a closed country where it's illegal to be a missionary. And Jesus uses us, a bunch of nobodies from nowhere, to gather His brothers and sisters into churches through the preaching of the Gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we witness King Jesus begin to rule in their hearts by faith. We get to witness little outposts of a coming great kingdom that are being planted all over the world. And yes, by faith, we may even end up Sacrificing our lives for Jesus, just like Jesus sacrificed his life for us. Our body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever and we will rule and reign with the Prince of Peace in that kingdom and have perfect peace on earth forever. And that is exactly what's going to happen.